0: Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine. As you know, we are a show that reports, rebels, and we tell it just like it is. On our show, History Matters, we examine the past as we think about the future. And we're interrupting our scheduled programming to bring a special episode to you about what's happening in Iran. About the 14,000 arrests that have taken place since September. The high rate of children that have been killed and protesters that have been killed all in the wake of the death of Zina Masa Amini, a 22 year old Kurdish girl who died after the trauma and violence inflicted upon her by the Islamic Republic's morality police for wearing an improper hijab girls and women have taken to the street in what is considered to be a revolution that is taking place to lift up just how much that women and girls demand and love freedom and men and boys are joining them too and just over the past six weeks there have been thousands of men women and children who have been arrested according to the un over fourteen thousand of them have been arrested defending human rights and uplifting the voices and concerns of women and girls. And so joining me on our episode today to help unpack what's happening is Dr. Yalta Hamidi, who's an assistant professor of gender and women's studies at Minnesota State University in Mankato. She identifies as a feminist, a mentor and storyteller. She works on feminist issues and is from Iran and I'm also joined by Dr. Parmes Khatibi who's engaged in solving some of the most pressing issues of our global economy and who's deeply involved in what's happening in Iran right now lifting up the concerns of girls and women domestically in the United States, but bringing attention to the issues that are taking place in Iran. She's one of the leading experts in mental health and wellness services and is a clinical specialist at the University of California Irvine Medical Center, as well as a clinical adjunct professor for the University of California, San Francisco and the School of Pharmacy at USC. Join me now as we unpack what is a very disturbing uh, aspect of what is taking place in Iran. But as you'll hear from my guest, as well there is a silver lining in terms of women and girls standing up for themselves and demanding a change. Parmesan and Yalda, it is really an honor to be with you and in times that are really so painful right to the gut. That I wish more people internationally were paying attention, that more people were paying attention to in the United States. You know, Iran is, experience, it's, is experiencing its largest, its most significant civil rights movement since the revolution in 1979. And Parmas, I'm wondering if you could perhaps help to level set and share a little bit about
1: what what's going on. Sure. So um, thank you, Michelle. So, you know, right now Iran is experiencing its largest civil rights movement, as you said, since 1979. And this was all sparked by the death back in September of Zina Masha Amini. She was a 22-year-old Kurdish girl who died after trauma and violence inflicted by Islamic the Islamic Republic's morality police for wearing an improper hijab. And what that means is that they have these morality police that basically are walking around the streets in every city in Iran. And if you don't have your ankles covered or you have a piece of hair out, they will come and educate you. And so it depends sometimes on the type of education um, these girls will or women will get. And unfortunately, this time um, she died in their hands after all the trauma and the violence that they inflicted upon her. And I think this is basically 43 years of pain and suppression that that everyone just had enough. And now there's this large and the first time ever women's led uh, civil rights movement in Iran and anywhere in the country, actually. You know,
0: one of the things that one sees in all of this is that there's been violence inflicted among, amongst, up, upon the women and the men who are protesting, who are trying to defend the honor of uh, the death of uh, Zena. You know, how have you been affected by this?
1: I am very involved in the Iranian community, not only Southern California, but um, abroad as well. And I think everybody I know knows somebody Oh, a second or third degree of difference that has been inflicted by this or has been a family member that has passed away um, or has been held captive um, by the morality police or the police for protesting. So um, I've been blessed to not have anyone personally in my own family, but I know so many friends whose family and friends have been inflicted upon by this regime
0: yalda i would like to pose that question to you too and also get your sense about what's happening on the ground and why we should be paying more attention in the united states
2: thank you michelle for having me here it's an honor talking to you in this very painful moment so one thing that i would like to mention is that this moment uh, in all its glory and pain that it offers us Encapsulates all my understanding of the history, the very long history of Iranian feminism. This moment has politics of feminism that really stands out to me. It's not just about repression against women. It addresses the issue of ethnicity, which is somehow similar to the issue of race in the United States. It speaks to the history of trauma that we all have been through with the Islamic regime but also the history of trauma in Iran goes beyond this regime because we had some sort of, the similar sort of trauma with the previous regime that used to pronounce themselves secular and modernizing, but actually imposing rules on people's bodies similarly. And the other thing that really stands out to me, for years you have heard from our supposedly representatives in the United Nations that we do not have a queer community. And in this moment, the Iranian queer community are coming out and advocating for their rights and just performing in front of the embassies and everything. The Iranian community with disabilities are coming out and talking for the right of disabled people. Uh, And one other thing that really stands out to me is the social class issue in this matter, you see people not just from upper class Tehran, middle class Tehranis but also from all sorts of neighbourhoods in the metropolitan, metropole of Tehran but also across the city from rural areas, from uh, smaller towns coming out and shouting for women life freedom. I think this moment is, is going to tell the world about who we are and what we stand for and also what we have gone through. I have all my family back in Iran. And uh, something that's really important to me is the history of trauma. The trauma is not just a person getting shot or a girl experiencing police brutality. The trauma is in the eyes of all the teenagers who feel threatened and feel not respected. The trauma is my friend who was on the plane from Tehran to uh, Toronto and the plane, we're talking about the plane being shot. So it's the trauma of us not knowing whether or not this government is going to protect our right of citizenship Uh, and let me just, Acknowledge that the shooting of the plane was accidental, but it doesn't take away from the trauma that we all endure. The trauma is me getting arrested as a younger woman by morality police and receiving names that were far less than any human dignity. And the trauma is people not being able to, provide for their families while they are doing their best and they are getting back to their families every night more miserable than before
0: so let's talk about the morality police and then i want to turn to you know just in recent weeks the number of deaths which again i think that people in the united states really don't understand just how many people have been killed including children, there have been over 56 children that have been killed, 362 protesters, and that number has probably gone up uh, in terms of the, the number of individuals that have been killed. But you, you've both mentioned the morality police. And in the United States, we've become more familiarized in recent years with police-involved violence, certainly after the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. Uh, and similarly to the kinds of protests that erupted in the United States after the killing of George Floyd, we see some of that, you know, a version of that different, but still um, in Iran taking place. Can you tell us a little bit about the morality police, Yalda, maybe if you could just give us a brief description, because you were stopped by the morality p- police when you were younger.
2: Uh, so, let me just say that the Iranian feminists underground and Iranian cyber feminists sometimes do not use the term morality police because they would want everybody to know that there is no morality involved. It's just repression. So I'm uh, talking about police brutality in its most cruel version that you can imagine. And of course, it has so much with what's happening in the world and what's happening in this country against the community of African-American people. Uh, But also, it's the police that was put in place initially to make sure to enforce hijab rules. And uh, when we talk about hijab, we also need to have a broader perspective. There are one billion Muslims living in the world. And not everybody in this Muslim community wears hijab or considers hijab as part of their faith. And I also would like to highlight that so many of the girls and women who are burning their hijab in the streets of Tehran and protesting are not uh, against Islam. In fact, so many of them are believers. So it's not the issue about the religion. I would like to highlight that this police is a police, just a police. And the issue is about police brutality, not enforcing moralities and not enforcing Islamic Sharia rule, because so many of the jurists would disagree with them. But they also do not pay attention to all the opposing voices that there is among Iranian clerics and uh, while i was arrested by them it was i believe in how the summer of you? 20- were, were, were you,
0: how old were you were you in your 20s your teens? Uh, I,
2: I i think i was 30 30 mm-hmm. when i was uh, and and i was not exactly arrested so there were the three of us my husband and his cousin and i and we were going shopping and the cousin uh, stayed with us over the night. We were very happy to have her. And at the end of her sleepover at our house, we wanted to take her into shopping. And then all the three of us were heading into her house. And uh, it's very funny because I've been working with Islamic uh, ruling on women's body for many years, even before I leave my country. and. Uh, live in the United States. So at that time, the first question that the police asked me was like, have you read anything on hijab? I just looked into her eyes and I was like, probably more than you can imagine. But what's the point of that? You're not going to listen to me arguing with you about the fate, about the interpretations that all the Islamic feminists and secular feminists have of the faith. This moment, let's not give you any credential in telling you how much I read and how much I did research on hijab and its role in Iranian history and in the history of Middle East. Let's just stay with the fact that you have power over me and you're interrogating me all the inappropriate questions. So one of the questions she would ask me was, what's in the handbag of your guest?" And I was just puzzled, how should I know? And the second comment she made, if she was an honorable woman, she was not at your house. And nothing in that moment, it was a moment that my brain stopped working. And it took me years to process through the trauma and pain that that moment caused, that she was accusing me of so many things that I was not, being an immoral person and implying that good moral person would go to the staff of her guest and just expose a woman's belonging for just acquiring that kind of morality that they were looking for. It was a mm. very, and, and and you know, this experience, my experience was very mild and minor. They let us go after about half an hour, but that experience remained with me. And I want you to think about all those women and all those girls who have been asked inappropriate questions, immoral questions. Those women, those girls are moral agents on the ground. They are screaming for their agencies and they are implying, and they are actually exposing the police. So in their honor, I, Really, agree with them that we shouldn't be using the term morality right. police because because this police is actually right. void of any morality. And I understand your point with that.
0: So I to turn to you, uh, Parmas, just about that because it is a term that is being used, and there's a sort of sense that there is. So, so I completely understand that that it is a term that's being used uh, inappropriately by those who are wielding it, right? Because there's an assumption by what they do that they are creating a more sort of moral society, or they're sort of two people that is, are perceived as being immoral. So Parmas, can you tell us just a little bit about why this is going on? What's behind this kind of policing? And do you think that with the protests that are taking place now, that a change will come?
1: Yeah, so um, Michelle, it's oddly enough, if you go back to 1936, when the Shah's father was um, in power, there was a dynasty in Iran back then. He didn't allow women to wear a hijab; he thought it was unmodern. So during that time, up till the revolution, Iran was very modern. I mean, women women were in all uh, forms of power and political government. Um, they were wearing mini skirts. They were wearing suits. So so it's a very modern, very westernized country. When the revolution occurred, and between 1979 and 1990, that's when the morality police, or I'll call it the guidance patrol, that's another term that's used for it sometimes, that was formally set up, Um, there was a great deal of pressure on women often by just people on the streets or by random members of the police forces. Um, And this is completely focused on women. And it's really an example of how the states will take women's rights and abuse them. And in this particular case that we talked about, it was a young woman who died as a result of simply not wearing her veil correctly. And that triggered um, a lot of people in Iran who are already feeling a great deal of grievance against the way that the state has been handling their economic futures. And their ability to feel a sense of liberty um, and exercise their rights. And I think that's the reason why this guidance patrol um, morality police has become such a target um, and the upset that we're seeing sweep through the country. Now, with that being said, we've gone too far to turn back. So um, the reprimands of stopping not only in the U.S. and across the world and in Iran, all of these rallies and protests were putting to amplify their voices is because there has to be some type of regime change. The, you know, I, I compare the people of Iran kind of like the government of Iran is North Korea and the people of Iran are South Korea. There is no ideology that matters. Matches one another, Um, and they can't turn back because I feel like if they do stop or turn back, the reprimands are going to be so much more harsher by this government on them. Um, And the people I've spoken to in Iran have just said amplify our voices because when internet is available and they can hear um, and see all of our posts on social media, it just gives them more power to know that there's support for them to keep moving forward and demanding change.
0: So Parmas, so I going to follow up because people then would wonder, based on what you've said, the governments like North Korea and the people are like South Korea, how does this government get into place? How does this government sustain? I mean, people in the United States really are so far removed. Can you help to explain that?
1: Um, how do, well, you know, when the revolution occurred, I mean, there's you know, some people will say it was the doing of the CIA in the US. I mean, there's so many theories about why this revolution occurred. Um, I don't want to go down the political aspect of it, but yeah, you're more than welcome to turn in. But you know, when you suppress your people, when you cause fear. Towards them when you do things that when you lead by fear. Um, and cause so much suppression, that is how they've stayed in place. And unfortunately, if you don't have, you know, the military, the police on the side of the people, what do they have to fight with? Just stones, you know, where are stones going to do against all the ammunition they have? Um, so that's just how they stayed in place so long. So it's just so remarkable to see all these women and young girls chanting death to the dictator, taking off their hijab, walking in the streets and not caring what the reprimands are, because these are, this is a generation that grew up on, you know, Instagram, social media, TikTok. So they see freedom in the other side of the world, and they want that. And there is no hope for them in Iran. So they have nothing to lose in that sense by fighting now um, for regime change.
0: So Yalda, I want to pick up on, on that with regard to the regime that's in power and the fact that women and girls are fighting back. This is a regime that has also said that it's willing to put to death people who've been protesting. Kate, can you lift a bit of that up? Because it's really quite extraordinary for a government to say that it's willing to kill its protesters.
2: Uh, I would like to take a step back because it's a very privileged uh, podium that we're talking to. And I have some personal opinions on the matter. But I would like to highlight that with a country as large as Iran, with more than 18 million population, and with history of feminism that goes beyond a century, we have multiple voices among the feminists. And for uh, me, addressed one of the voices that are loud and we hear them more often in the United States because of the access and the privilege that people who advocate for this voice have. And I have some uh, agreements and disagreement, but I don't think at this point what I think is the most important issue. So I just want to give you a background view of different branches of feminism in Iran, we have at least four different branches. And it's so expected that these people have disagreements on different issues with each other. We have the history of the secular feminism that goes back to 1905. We have the history of leftist feminism that comes with the existence of the leftist movement in Iran. And we have Uh, The history of Islamic feminism, which is the newer version of Muslim women advocating for feminism based on faith, came about in uh, about 1970s across the world. And as Parmis mentioned, we have the cyber feminism right now. Uh, and cyber feminists have at least two groups in them. So after the repression of the regime on so many feminists on the ground, and we're talking about Mahmoud Ahmadinejad regime, and we're talking about the election that we believe was hijacked by him. So many of the feminists had to leave the country and they couldn't get their voices across anymore. Those feminists right now leaving across the globe but you can find them on different social media trying to raise their own voices. And these are the first group of the Iranian cyber feminists. And the second group that I would like to mention are the youth that Parmes talked about them. So right now we have 13 year old and 16 year old who are TikTokers and vloggers, and they are on uh, Instagram doing their work. And so many of those kids were in the streets and we lost so many of them, just as you mentioned.
0: I would love to have a show where we could go deeper into
2: uh, aspects of, of that history. Yes, thank you. So what happening right now is that all these feminists having different sorts of demands of the government. So if you look at the secular feminists, you can recognize different voices. And the two loud voices that we hear right now are the voices for regime change, but also voices that advocate for feminist solidarity across the globe and people who would argue that U.S. sanctions against Iran actually has exacerbated the situation for so many people. And... uh, I think we need to pay attention to these two voices and what they have to offer. And as a person who's standing in the middle, I do believe that each side has some level of truth into that. So I think it's really important to see this issue in a global scale because that scale is provide us with better steps for moving forward. So regime change is the demand that usually implies military intervention. Because of that, I try to stay away from that. Right. And Yalda, let me get to that. But but I want to stay back
0: on the point that I had raised, right? And, and that point being about the judiciary announcing last week that over a thousand indictments had been issued in relation to the protesters. But I would really love for our listeners to understand just what is at risk so that they understand that this is not a matter of, which is horrible in and of itself, the death of one young woman that sparks a revolution, but that there have been many deaths. and that now the judiciary has announced over a thousand indictments. and then there have been other accounts that even more than that that may lead to execution. And you know, there's you know, there are news reports saying, well, well, of course the the sort of announcement of the uh, proposed executions will not be taking place. But I just think it's so important that people sort of understand just what is, you know, sort of lifting up in the air in uh, Iran right now. And so, Parmas, I wonder if you might be able to speak to that. Do you have any kind of clarity just on what those indictments represent? Um, should people be worried that those indictments, that level of indictment, will actually lead to punishment and death?
1: No, I 100% believe so, because I believe this is a regime that is no holds bar. I mean, they're killing children, um, point blank. So I 100% believe that um, we all should be worried with these indictments and it will actually be carried out. Um, I mean, if, if you heard recently about the whole, uh, the Sharif University, which is like the Harvard of uh, Iran, they had barricaded and they were shooting at students there because they want to kill all the brightest minds. Um, Same thing happened in Evan prison was where they take all of, you know, anyone who was a political powerhouse, anyone who was for human rights um, again, brilliant minds that have talked against a regime. And there was a fire that erupted there um, allowing people to die. um, And they barricaded from people coming in and saving them. Um, So this is a regime that I personally believe has no hold bar. um, And it will carry these out. I mean, they hang people if, you are gay, you're hung in Iran for being gay. So I mean, this is a very brutal regime. And I would definitely be very, be very concerned about these indictments. um, And we do need to somehow get involved because they will carry these out, in my opinion.
0: And then just to clarify for our listeners, so um, we know that there've been over a thousand indictments. Um, there was a United Nations report that got conflated with some of this, which said that as many as 14,000 protesters have been arrested and over the past six uh, weeks, which is quite significant and speaks back to what both of you were saying, Parmis and Yelda. Um, and the uh, parliament in Iran uh, has called on the judiciary to act decisively against those who have been arrested. So we know that over 14,000 have been arrested. We know that there have been over a thousand uh, indictments and we know that the parliament has called on the judiciary to act decisively against the arrested protesters. And we also know, as you say, that um, at, that there are children who have been killed and at the most prestigious um, university in Iran, which is one of the most prestigious in the world, that there has been gunfire directly aimed at uh, the students uh, and the faculty who are there. So you know what's what happens next, do you think? You know, how in the world, how should governments get involved? How should activists get involved? How should women's groups, groups that in the United States, um that embrace you know women's rights that embrace feminism what should they be doing and paying attention to in this moment i'll start with you Yalda, and then i'd like to hear from you Parmis.
2: this is a very difficult question and there are a couple of suggestions in the air and i try to pick up from what i heard but it's a very difficult moment if you subtract the military intervention, which is something that I don't believe in, what else we can do? One of the things that I'm hearing from feminists on the ground that they are really looking for is different groups of feminists across the globe showing solidarity. So recently, we had a letter signed by Palestinian feminists just uh, taking a stand and saying no to what Islamic regime is doing in the name of Islam to uh, Muslim women. Keep in mind that this regime has made a claim that they've been supporting Palestinian women's rights for the past 40 years. So it definitely means something when Palestinian women refuse to accept that kind of support and stand with Iranian women who have been gone through police brutality. We have seen uh, marches in the streets of Kubani and all the cities that you wouldn't think of necessarily, but women are showing up and just disowning this regime and dishonoring what they are doing in the name of Islam. I would like to actually, on top of feminists, encourage all the muslim world to please come out and lend us your voices and say no to what's happening in the name of religion because we know that this is not a religious issue and what else is to do I know that there are abolitionist feminist uh, groups working on different issues. Some of them are located in California. Some of them are trying to get Internet to the hands of people in Iran. And I know that there are technical ways and governments can do things and corporations can do things. For example, because of the sanctions, people can never use their iPhones in full capacity in Iran. I'm one of those people, whenever I travel to Iran, there used to be problems with using different apps on my phone. So one of the things that I can ask for, and I think is useful, is removing those kind of sanctions so people on the ground have access and can get their voices and demand and can tell us what's exactly necessary for them. In this moment, and the other thing that comes to my mind is what you're doing, Michelle, and I'm very grateful for that. Get the voices across, let people know what's happening, and let's not keep our eyes from what's happening, because just as Parmi said, it's a huge brutality, and there is no way that we can ignore that and leave Iranian people alone with a government that holds no moral at this point for just moving forward with some of these criminalization and indictments. Uh, The other thing that I want to talk to more academic audience who are hearing my voice is that know that this moment is the moment of trauma. And thanks to our sister feminists, we know a lot about uh, students who deal with police brutality and come to class. Know that the Iranian community in America, and across the board, and I'm talking about students, graduate students, are coming to your classes with trauma. Please, please, please be there for them. Uh, provide accommodation. Know that the trauma changes the brain, and you cannot have the same expectations of your colleagues and of your students. And one Mm -hmm. of the other things that I would like to see happening on the ground is different opportunities for Iranian scholars who would like to leave Iran immediately. I'm serving on the Global Education Council on my campus, and I would like these councils and these DI committees to move fast and provide uh, funding for people who need to leave the ground immediately. Journalists, feminists, academics who has who experienced trauma and their lives has been threatened by the government
0: Yelda, i i really appreciate you mentioning the coming back to the matter of trauma and coming back to the issue that it threads globally and there is a very large uh expatriate um, iranian um, community all around the world right um, and including in the united states and there are friends uh, our students our colleagues and i really appreciate your mentioning that you know the matters that are going on back in iran are those that touch them deeply Parmas, I'd, I'd like to turn that question to you that I you know started with which is you know what what are the next steps what what can be be done what should people have on their minds and, and be doing looking to do?
1: Well I think um, for I've had so many people ask me this question what can we do to help being here one is just to keep raising your voice you know your voice is powerful and keep raising it and tell people to stand with you. Um, Secondly, you know, we're all global citizens and I think um, showing your solidarity by sharing a message of why you stand with the women of Iran is very uh, important. Um, third, I would say, you know, attend events where you learn about oppressed communities. There's no way to learn about human rights violations than attending events that talk about that are going to actual areas, even within the U.S., that are oppressed communities or marginalized communities. That's very important. Um, you know, and sh- and share posts that you see on protests so other people um, in your community can know about it as well. And then, you know, donate or support human rights organizations and i think a lot of times we think oh something is happening um abroad, it doesn't affect us here. But I, I firmly believe that what occurs globally affects us here locally. And we've seen that in so many ways. So I think it's important for us here, wherever you are, is to get involved in your local community. Um, and also don't forget to reach out to your elected officials and let them know, because if you don't speak up and don't have a voice, no one will know what you're you're fighting for or what you're advocating for. So I think there's just some important things that we all can do to help move it along a little bit better.
0: You know, we've reached this time in our podcast, every episode we ask about a silver lining. And, you know, it can be heart-wrenching, you know, sort of coming from spaces where there's so much that has been broken. um, And yet within those spaces that are broken, it's amazing how people share of themselves how they fight for justice how they lift up and so i I want to ask each of you what that silver lining happens to be in these times and i'll start with you parmas
1: you know um i have to first say um michelle that it's so ironic because iran or cyrus the great he was the first king of persia and he's the one who wrote the human rights of declaration on the cyrus cylinder actually um and and that was in like 539 bc where he said everyone is free to choose their own religion establish racial equality and here we are now in a country that created you know human rights and everyone being equal and our women and girls are fighting for human rights. So the silver lining in all of this is that I think here, from I've noticed within my own community here, people have galvanized around a cause. And I think they've galvanized to either be part of a community, um, reach out to their elected officials and realize how their voice really matters in who they pick um as a as their congressman senator uh president or parliament member abroad um and three they realize that you do need to get involved in these issues because if you don't if it doesn't matter to you won't matter to anybody else and i think that's been such a silver lining to see so many iranian people get involved in their communities now both civically and politically and make and make for that change
0: I really appreciate you mentioning that and the Iranian people because there are men and boys who've also come into the streets understanding just what is at risk in these times. Yalda, what do you see as the silver lining?
2: There is there are so many. It's a very, very painful moment and I personally feel very traumatized, but it gives me the highest hope I've ever experienced. I think it's the beginning of a feminist revolution that has already started. And you know when you think of people uh, on the ground fighting a government by a slogans who shoots at them, you need to scale back on how you understand victory. I think this revolution has a very loud message. The message is women, life, freedom. And it means that if you want to free a community, you need to look at intersectionalities. And unless women, and I would say trans women, queer women, women of color, women from different ethnicities, women from the lowest social classes are free, none of us are going to be free. I would also very much agree with Parmis on the point that it's the beginning, hopefully of a global feminist revolution. I was talking to high schoolers in Minnesota yesterday and one of them asked me if I advocate for stopping police brutality against African-American community in Minnesota, am I helping feminists in Iran? And I Mm -hmm. said, absolutely, yes, because what happens in a place in the world has so much to do with somewhere else. I think hearing that student voice is the silver lining in my head. We need to connect all these fights. We need to stop global right here in our state. We need to fight for reproductive justice because what Iranians are fighting for is reproductive justice, the right of keeping your children alive and providing them with the freedom that they deserve. So against all the pain, I'm seeing a glory in this moment. And this is the silver lining for me. It's
0: been my privilege and honor to be with both of you today. Thank you so much for helping to spread the word about what is happening in Iran and the urgency of our paying attention and the threading of what's happening there to everyone around the world, including in the United States. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you for using your platform, Michelle
0: guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine. I want to thank each of you for tuning in for the full story and engaging with us. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode where you know we'll be reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is. For more information about what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com and be sure to subscribe. And if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America and being unbought and unbossed and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Wherever it is that you receive your podcast, we are ad-free and reader-supported. Help us reach new listeners by bringing this hard-hitting content in which you've come to expect and rely upon by subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show, and please support independent feminist media. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. And if you want to reach us, please do so. Email us at ontheissues at MsMagazine.com. We do read our mail. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Michelle Goodwin and Kathy Spiller are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zahl, Oliver Hogg, and also Allison Whelan. Our social media content producer is Sophia Panagrahi. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Natalie Holland, and music by Chris J. Lee.